You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of The Kingdom Project Podcast. Podcast. Uh... I've been behind. I've been lazy this last week. I need to record some episodes. So, you know, if you were paying attention, you know, uh, all you got was one episode this last week. So I'm going to try to get back at it. Um, no, I, I don't know. No really big uh, reason or excuse or anything like that. Just, um, uh, just being lazy, I guess. I don't know. Um, I don't, why? I don't have to give you guys an excuse. It doesn't matter give you guys some time to catch up. I know there's a lot of you out there that are just now just starting to get into um, the eschatology series and things like that. So um, I do post a lot of episodes from time to time. I do four sometimes a week. That's a lot. Um, some Sometimes it'll be two. Sometimes it'll be none. It'll be all right. Well, there'll always be one if I'm preaching or teaching, but uh, that may be the only one for the week. So let's just get into this if if we're ready, I think we are. All right. If if I'm ready, I want to talk about the offices of Jesus. You know, and this has to do with the work of Jesus is what he's done. So it's this this doctrine of the work of of Christ is um, usually organized by uh, the offices that he fulfilled and the stages of his work. All right. So what I mean by that is. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament um, offices of, of prophet, priest, and king. He acted as all those. Um, so uh, the anoint, well, no, the, these offices or roles um, in the Old Testament revealed these aspects of God's word. God's presence and God's power, the anointing and empowering of the Holy Spirit and favor of God was essential in these offices and were to truly represent God. Okay, so Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings foreshadowed, it was a type and shadow of the Messiah who would one day ultimately definitely be manifest as God's son and God's word, bringing access to God's presence and inaugurating the kingdom of God. Okay, so the prophetic work of Christ then is that a true prophet of God proclaims God's word to people. Okay, um, God promised Moses that he would raise up a messianic prophet who would authoritatively speak for him. Um, 
And those in Jesus' day expected the Messiah to fulfill the prophetic role uh, the Old Testament uh, foretold. And uh, the, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' prophetic ministry brought all, um, brought all that previous prophets of God had proclaimed to a, to a definite culmination. All right? He says, you know, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed uh, their their heir heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Uh, so that's in Hebrews one. Uh, having some problems here. Hold on here. I need to put this mic up a little higher. I think, at least for me. <laughs> all right, there we go. That's better. Um, so I don't know if it sounded weird or not, but it sounded weird in my headphones. All right. So Jesus equated his own words with the authoritative words of the Hebrew scriptures in showing that he knew his words were the very words of God. All right. He recognized the unchanging authority of the Mosaic law and he gave his teaching the same weight. Because Jesus' words are the very words of God, they are divinely authoritative then, and they are eternal and unchangeable. All right, so Jesus' prophetic authority is, is vastly superior to that of any other prophet because he speaks God's words as God. All right, the divine authority of his words is based on on his identity as God incarnate. He proclaimed God's truth as the one who is the truth. His word is the ultimate word, all right? So, you know, side note on that, um, you know, he he spoke God's words as God. Um, some people do this today with the, the Lord is saying or the Lord or so you know thus saith the lord or the the lord sometimes people have little little um precautionary words in there the lord would say um things like that but a lot of people are like the lord is saying or the lord said this and um eh, i wouldn't really do that i would like to say like i feel like you know or this is what i'm hearing but really what what is it when it comes to prophetic ministry today is that people think these are people that are actually mouthpieces speaking on behalf of God and sometimes they they just they say it like they speak in the first person like as if it's God like I am building this and I am doing this and I am doing that and really the word is really saying not to do that um because we're putting words in to God's mouth and if we're not right then ultimately we're taking the Lord's name in vain and it's blasphemy all right um, doing ministry in the wrong way being a, a false teacher or a false prophet and that's what that would that would be taking the Lord's name in vain you know lying and twisting scripture or giving false prophecies or speaking as if you're God 
uh, Jesus did that, but he was God. So (laughs) um, that is something, you know, that's pretty rampant. Um, It happens a lot. I don't like it. Um, Sometimes I know people just don't understand it or whatever. But, you know, also, again, in prophetic ministry, it's not like prophets of Old Testament prophecy, New Covenant prophecy should be speaking God's word. And that's, you know, we are to do that as the church is to we exhort one another, encourage and edify the body by speaking God's word. Ephesians 4 really goes into it good. The emphasis there, once it gets in to the second half, is not um, fivefold ministry that's been imposed onto the text by men, which would be eyes of Jesus. But when you draw from the text to expose the truth and to draw out the meaning of the text, the emphasis is not on apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Um, The emphasis is that if you could put brackets around that right there, God has given the gift of ministry. Okay, so... Um, a church isn't isn't in need of those five things. Um, one will do, and there's no modern apostles today because you can't meet the requirements that is in Acts one. Um, so to prophesy or to be a prophet, I wouldn't even really label somebody as a prophet today um, because most of it, most of the time, is not going to be predictive type of prophecy. Um, or looking into someone's future or prophesying things because most of the time when people are doing that, they're almost wanting to, they're, they're decreeing, declaring, trying to uh, speak these things into someone's life um, prophetically into the future. Um, well, you know, in, in that, you know, people just grab onto it and then it doesn't happen. Well, you know, they miss the fact that maybe that, if that were the way to do it, that maybe you have to grab onto those things and actually do some things to make that stuff happen yourself. It's not just going to happen, all right? But um, uh, I see that's some faults in the prof- prophetic ministry today that is really to to use the Word of God. Um, and when I mean the Word of God, uh, you know, I'm talking about the Bible. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> little rant there. Um so, the there's implications of the prophetic office of Jesus, all right? Since Jesus is the true and perfect prophet, then he is the ultimate source of truth about God. He's the ultimate source of truth about our, ourselves, the meaning of life, um, you know, right and wrong, uh, salvation, heaven and hell, and all those things. The voice of Jesus in the Word of God should be eagerly, eagerly sought and obeyed without reservation or delay. Because so, because here's the th- and here's the thing. In the Gospels, we only have about fifty-five days total of Jesus's three and a half year ministry. But we have Acts, and then we have. The, all the rest of the New Testament, these epistles. And here's the thing about that, that in Acts 2, um, Peter gets up and the Holy Spirit's being poured out and he, he gives, he 
recites Joel's prophecy, and then everybody's just, you know, they're cut to the quick, they're, heart, you know, pierced in the heart. What should we do? They realize they killed the Messiah, and he, repent, repent, uh, be baptized, all of you, in Jesus' name, and, uh, and, and then they did, and from that day forward, they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teachings. And Jesus had told them, like, you go teach what I have done. Go teach what I have taught you. Don't worry about if you're not going to remember all of it because the Holy Spirit will speak through you. And then this is the inspiration in which they did their ministry, but definitely by the inspiration that that they wrote what we have now in the New Testament. So, um, uh, so Jesus then still is the true and perfect prophet, and it goes on, and the apostles' teachings are still making disciples of all nations because of the new the work in the New Testament. All right, so um, the, the voice of Jesus in the Bible, all right, or the Word of God, like should be then eagerly sought and obeyed without reservation. All right, so even though Jesus perfectly fulfills the office of prophet, then here's what you know, I'm backtracking now and coming to this because I jumped ahead is God's plan is for the church to represent him with its ongoing prophetic voice, proclaiming truth into the world, proclaiming the apostles' teachings, the gospel. Uh, Paul, Paul saw his ministry as speaking for God. When he says we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God in 2 Corinthians 5. We are to do the same as the church. And of course, we have leaders in the church and they aren't equipping us for the service of ministry because they're they're equipping us us for the service of the good works in which we've been created in Christ, all right? And and I talk about good works a lot too. So it's not all about everyone's a minister because the text doesn't say that, but those who are called from the calling into Christian faith may not be called to preacher or teacher or street evangelist or a missionary even, but they may be just called to be a Christian that still speaks God's word to people in encouragement and exhortation and edification, okay? All right, so we have the prophetic work, and then we have the priestly work of Christ, okay? So while a prophet speaks God's words to the people, a priest represents the people before God and represents God before the people. He is a man who stands in the presence of God as a mediator. All right. And so the priestly work of Christ involves both atonement and intercession. And so that that has us look at the atonement of Christ, which there are many versions of it. Um, but the atonement is central to God's work in in the history of humanity. Um, he broke through into the timeline of history and did this, all right? But it, it's in the work of salvation. Uh, atonement is the making of enemies into friends, all right? By, by averting the punishment that their sin would otherwise incur. Sinners that are in rebellion against God, they need a representative to offer 
sacrifice on their behalf if they are to be reconciled to the Father. So Jesus' righteous life and his atoning death on behalf of sinners is the only way for fallen man to be restored into this right relationship with the Holy God, God the Father. And in this is reconciliation. This is salvation. This is the work of Christ. This is the part of the atonement and the priestly work that he did. So, um, and you'll see this in the the Old Testament, and w- even with the extensive requirements that um, the the that the priest had in the Old Testament, there there was never nevertheless a, a realization that these human priests were unable to make an actual lasting atonement. Right? It just didn't work. It had to be done over and over. But Jesus alone was able to make an offering that was sufficient for eternity, for eternal forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus was without sin, right? Then he was able to offer sacrifice without needing atonement for himself. So in offering himself as the perfect spotless lamb of God, he could actually pay for sins in a way that the Old Testament sacrifices could not do. So Jesus's atoning offering is was and it is was eternal. It's complete and once for all. There's no other sacrifice will ever be needed to pay the price for uh, a human being's sin. So Jesus died because of human sin, but he he also died in accordance with God's plan. So the reality of human sin it it is seen in even in we, we know it's there because of the fall, but it's seen in the envy of Jewish leaders in the first century, and we see Judas's greed. We see Pilate being a coward. All right. So there's plenty of examples there, but Jesus gave his life in his own initiative, right? And his his own love. Um, he he says um, he, he says the Father loves me, and because I laid down my life that um, I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. All right, so we have this divine um, plan. All right, uh, this initiative um, that uh, that led to Jesus Jesus's atoning work. Right, um, and it says he he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And This is in Romans 8, reference to back in Isaiah 53, and then John 3.16 is a good example of that. And then as just like all these events of human history that, that take place, um, God worked in this, right? Um, 
with with human decisions and, and actions, all right? Because even so even human sin is woven into God's divine purposes. And it's that's seen in verses that say that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And that um, Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. These are hard texts, but they have to do with the, the, the predestination or predetermining of, of Jesus' ministry. Okay, um, and I'm not I'm not gonna go deeper into that because that's a whole just a whole other thing. But I'm saying within the work of of the atonement and the 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 priestly work of Christ, we know some things were uh, planned out before even the foundation of the world. All right, so Christ came to save sinners. He came to save us all in order to accomplish God's will. And he died in accordance with with the, the God's this free gracious choice, not because he was was in any way compelled to offer salvation. Maybe, <laughs> um, uh, because uh, of something inherent in us, right? That's what some could say. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know if he was compelled to. I believe he was, though, um, because some say um, that, you know, he didn't have to. Well, no, he didn't have to, but it seems like he wanted to uh, because he did. Uh, so, uh, yeah, God didn't say fallen angels, right? And he would be justified in condemning all of humanity then to hell, right? But there seems to be a reasoning in him because of his mercy and his grace to have predetermined and set this into motion to have Jesus atone for all of humanity's sins and to for, for Jesus to fulfill the law um, to get away with, to get rid of the the sacrifices that would take place over and over and over again, because those just weren't sufficient. And he, I think it was a once and for all thing. And I believe he was compelled some in some way to do it because he wanted right relationship and he wants us to enter into that and he wanted it to be like he originally had created it where you're walking in the cool of the day with him in the garden right in paradise and so you know there's there's questions there so that's why i don't want to all get into all the different different you know different parts of it all right so um so you know the atonement in the bible is explained with numerous metaphors and different types of images all right um there is the language of the old testament sacrifices which is the blood lamb sacrifice all right um personal relationship language like reconciliation um the, the language of righteous anger at wrongdoing, which is propitiation. There's the language of the marketplace, which is redemption and ransom. 
There's the langu- language of a of a, a court, uh, the law of court, which is which is justification, and language of the battlefield, even victory, deliverance, and rescue. Um, there's different, a little bit of different results in all of these. But it all ends up really being that we are delivered and are triumphant in Jesus. All right. So uh, throughout church history, there's the various aspects of the atonement have have um, gained or garnered particular attention. You know, like at different times, theologians have stressed the ransom imagery the selfless example of Christ and the victory of Christ over evil. Um, and these aspects of the atonement, when rightly understood, they do contain true and important insights. All right. But the, the, the crux, the, just the, the really what under undergirds all of it, of the atonement is Christ taking the place of sinners and enduring um, what he did all right, as a sin offering, a sacrifice. And when I say sin offerings, because we have that scripture that says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And it doesn't mean that he truly actually sin entered him and he became sin. That is a different way. It's a Jewish way of saying he was a sin offering. He was the lamb, right? The lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. Therefore, he's being offered for it all right so um uh so we do have different passages like in second corinthians 5 uh 21 for our sake he yeah that's what he just what i said because <laughs> i looked off of my notes that um um he he uh, he he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him he might become we might become the righteousness of god all right um Oh, sorry. I always jump ahead. I get excited, you know, if talking fast here. Okay, so um, uh, the, the the thing is, the problem, the fundamental problem of 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 human sin, it, it's that it's been solved in Christ dying for sinners, right? Okay, any attempt to diminish that importance, all right, um, of Christ for us. Um, will diminish God's holiness and the whole the whole narrative that's that's happening throughout the Bible as and 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 just make more make light of it and even make um, light of the depth of sin and humanity. I think so. That's the you know the emphasis I'm trying to make there. So Christ's physical suffering on the cross was was you know. Uh, uh, the bearing bearing the sin of mankind and ha- having the wrath of the father not be poured out on us you know um now some say the the wrath was poured out on him uh but i don't see that you know i don't i, I just don't see it if god was inside of him then god poured wrath on god um so then Again, again, that's why there's problems here. Um, I'm like going through this because there's so many different interpretations of it. All right, um, but this 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 was merciful. This was grace. This sacrifice, the sacrifice that happened is that he will be worshipped for all etern 
eternity by those who are his, all right? Uh, Jesus' death for sinners was the basis of his atoning work, uh, the basis of his life of perfect righteousness in our place was also necessary to win our forgiveness, all right? So he not only died for rebels, he also lived for them, all right? So then that would bring us then to the intercession of him, the intercession of Christ. This His priestly work on the cross atoned for sin once uh, for all. And grounded in that atoning work, his priestly work of intercession continues now and for eternity, all right, forevermore on behalf of his people, all right? Um, Jesus, Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he's the one who was raised. Uh, he is the one who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Romans 8, 34, all right? Jesus is able to save uh, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus is alive and always, and, and always at work representing and bringing requests for believers before the throne of God, intervening in heaven for us. Um, he is the God-man who, who mediates and represents fallen people based on his his uh, fully uh, sufficient work on the cross as well and his um, inter intervention of that all right in their lives as we pray for them as we minister to them as we use the prophetic word of God as speaking the gospel to them um, so uh, as as the people who are the body, who constitu constitute as the church, are intended to have this prophetic voice of uh, as being Jesus' ambassadors, God also intends to use the church in this priestly row to usher people into his presence because he wants to add living stones to his holy dwelling temple, the place in which he desires to dwell. All right, so um, because... Because of Jesus' work, then all of God's people are viewed as priests with priestly access into his presence and with the privilege of representing people before God. So there's prayer, there's preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, taking initiative in, in personal or spiritual ministry are all different ways in which God's people can actually um, encourage um, and exhort and edify uh, one another to seek and know God and can there, thereby fulfill their call to represent Christ as a kingdom of priests. That's good. <laughs> so that brings us then to the kingly work of Jesus, the kingly work of the Christ, the Messiah, because Christ is not only the ultimate prophet and priest, he is also the divine king, the king of kings, lord of lords. And unlike the kings of Israel, who are intended to foreshadow the Messiah, Jesus' ring as messianic king 
is in no way limited. He rules over all creation for all time. It says that in Luke and in Colossians. And this rule must, uh, not must, this rule directly touches us, the believers, at, at the present time, right? But also one day all peoples will bow to his royal authority. And in, in, in addition to his rule, he also defends, he protects, and shepherds his people and will one day judge all the world's inhabitants, all right? Past, present, and future. Um, again, another debatable thing. Um, do people go straight to heaven and people go straight to hell right now? Or is that future? Um, different views on that too. Not going into it in this t time on this episode, all right? So, God's people represent their king when they when they work to seek kingdom realities spread in the world. When um now here's the thing. Uh it's not social justice <laughs> that's like going on right now. In case you haven't noticed, um, within the church, a lot of social justice is taking place. All right, we are we are to work to spread the values of our King Jesus. All right, but um, now you know we want to help the poor. We we want to help the disenfranchised. We want to take care of of people. All right, but social justice and the definition of our culture today is not. The type of justice in which Jesus came to bring. Um, again, and not the time to go into that. But um, if that's what you're thinking when I when you hear some of these things, uh, I don't think so. So much. Um, I see it a different way. Okay. So, but when 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 we work hard. Um, I don't want to say work hard. I think you know what I mean. We, when we walk by the Spirit, when we're led by the Spirit, and we do the good works in which we were created for in Christ, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, then we live as good citizens. And we are then living as salt um, and light and in this world of darkness, all right? Ultimately, we then are serving the interest of our King, who is Jesus, all right? Um, so, uh, that, yeah, that's, that's that part there. So th the stages then of Christ's work then, um, is best summed up, um, it, it comprehensive, right? Statement on the work of Christ is in Philippians two, five through 11. It says, have this have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. I've talked about that a lot. <laughs> emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right. All right, so when it again, just a note because it's a big thing for me that when it says emptied himself, he was not just a man, he did not empty himself of his deity. He was not just a man, he was 100% God, 100% man. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man. It's called the hypostatic union, okay, and that's what I believe. He wasn't just a man in right relationship in God therefore unable to do the things that he did by just the Holy Spirit. He did them because the full deity, God and the Holy Spirit, dwelt in him bodily. It says that in Colossians, all right? So, but these verses teach humility, profound humility, all right? When we say walk, walk in um, humility, uh, be humble, things like that, he walked in humility um, in the eventual exaltation of Christ, uh, uh, I'm stumbling in my words. I'm sorry. They, they, this teaches profound humility and an eventual exaltation of Jesus in the history of salvation. All right, the the sequence set out here has actually been described as the ten stages of Christ's work. And it's divided into a humiliation phase and and an exaltation phase, alright? So let me like when hum, hum humility, alright, is humiliation. Alright? It's a loneliness a low lowliness of mind to walk in a mind of humiliation, to be humble. He humbled himself to the Father to walk in this way. Alright. So the stages are pre incarnate glory that he existed, right? Always and forever. There's no beginning. There's no end. So his pre incarnate glory and then his incarnation which brought his earthly life, then his crucifixion, then his resurrection, then his ascension, to his setting at God's right hand, to his final coming, to that leads to the future reign. All right, some talk about this as the millennial reign, um, which if you heard my teaching, um, from last week you'll know what that is and then the last the tenth is eternal glory and these ten stages um uh, and two phases is is what is seen there all right so um the the pre pre-incarnate glory is there and then humiliation starts in incarnation earthly life to crucifixion but with the resurrection ascension setting at god's right hand um the, the final coming future ring and fruit future reign and eternal glory is the exaltation all right all right so um the to 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 understand the humility of of christ um in becoming a man, one must must think about what he he gave up to make that possible. But we we know very little about 
the experience of God before the world's creation, right? But we do know that he's always existed as one being. This the, the three persons within his being perfectly relating in mutual love and glorification as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also with uh, this, um, um, this intra-Trinitarian glorification, angelic beings, right? Uh, uh, unceasingly worship the infinite worth of the trinity or of the triune god and so jesus consented to surrender the himself from the position in heaven so he could represent humanity in his incarnation and when he took took the role of a servant and assumed a human nature in addition to his divine nature his divinity was veiled his glory was veiled in his humanity and then that's what you see unveiled at the mount of transfiguration all right but he willingly surrendered the um uh uh that glory so <laughs> all right um uh so this humility is taught in second corinthians uh, uh, eight, even eight, nine. It says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, uh, by his poverty, might become rich." Right. So it's it's only when the glories of heaven are finally revealed, will revealed are finally revealed, will what Jesus temporarily gave up in coming on earth as a man. Uh, be most fully understood that it is a loving um, just such a loving picture of what he did all right so and then the humiliation of christ that incarnation it literally means in flesh that christ took on a full complete human nature with a physical body so that he could truly repu- represent human humanity and god the son chose to come to earth in the most humble way all right defying all expectation and his 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 contemporaries the people around him saw him as the son of a poor couple he was born in this uh, small obscure village and he had there was nothing in his appearance to attract them to himself and and in the carnation god shows um, in striking manner that he does not value what the world so often values all right and then we we have his his early life, which was um, one of uh, w- continual humiliation. All right, he's he um, he he's subtly um, it was subtle and selectively when he revealed his divine glory, uh, sometimes keeping it at secret. But he radically altered the pre, um, prevalent conception of the Messiah. By combining the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 with the glorious conquering king of Daniel 7, all right? And um, uh, although multitudes would follow him during his ministry, he would face frequent persecution and rejection, and um, even in his own hometown. And uh, the the, the the creature's rejection of their uh, their creator 
um, shows human rebellion in this. And uh, John 1 describes that, you know, on, on 10 and 11, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And his life... His life ended with some of his closest friends betraying him. Judas, Peter denied him, and uh, all of it. Then the other disciples deserted him. All right, his life was filled with rejection and loneliness, uh, poverty, persecution, hunger, temptation, suffering, and then finally death. Uh, so that's what is being referred to when it says humiliation. All right, but then 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 you the old the humiliation reached that greatest depth when he gave his life. Um, and and died on a cross or was killed on a cross and the cross stands at the center of human history as god's supreme act of love which is the only source of redemption for lost and fallen human humanity all right so that then that takes us to the exaltation of christ which begins with the resurrection so while his life of humiliation represented the life of human beings living in a fallen world, his, his exaltation represents a pattern that will someday be reproduced and is, already, is partially reproduced already in those who believe in him. So this exaltation of, of Jesus began when he left his uh, grave clothes in the empty tomb. His sin, Satan, and death were decisively defeated when Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus foretold his resurrection, resurrection and then actually did rise from the dead, as is shown by uh, convincing historical evidence such as the empty tomb, fi over 500 witnesses, the radical change in the disciples' lives into apostles to start the church in all of the known world at that time. In addition, and in addition to defeating sin and death, the resurrection was the Father's validation of Jesus' ministry. And it demonstrates the complete effect and effectiveness of Jesus' atoning work. All right. First Corinthians 15 provides that most comprehensive treatment of the benefits of the, the, the resurrection. And explaining, explaining what would be lost if Jesus had not risen from the dead, Paul says um, he provides abundant reason for hope in the truth of the resurrection because, uh, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. All right, because Christ rose from the dead, then the sins of those who rely on him are forgiven. The apostolic preaching is true, faith in Christ is true, and he can be fully trusted. And those who follow Christ are to be emulated, and their preaching is of great value. And those who die in Christ will be raised because of the resurrection. The Christian has a great hope, right, that generates confidence in all circumstances of our lives the resurrection is not merely just a doctrine to understand and be affirmed intellectually it is the the basis that it is the, the the affirmation that jesus reigns over all and the power that raised him from the dead uh is 
is the Christian's power. It is our power for living the Christian life on earth, and it's the assurance of eternal life in heaven. All right. It's a lot of stuff. And it's good. And so you have the ascension. And the ascension is Jesus' return to heaven from earth. The incarnation does not cease even with Jesus' ascension because Jesus lives now and forever as this in a physical body, as a true man and a true God to mediate between God and man. And he will come as he left, fully God and fully man. His essential is actually crucial event in his ministry because it shows his continual humanity and the permanence of his resurrection. And the importance of the ascension is seen in the fact that it is taught in all the essential creeds of, of the church as, long, as well as confessions. And it begins with the Apostles' Creed, all right? The ascension guarantees, guarantees that Jesus will always represent humanity before the throne of God as our mediator, as our intercessor, um, and advocate for us. Because of the ascension, we can be sure that Jesus' unique resurrection leads the way then for everlasting resurrection of the redeemed, of those who have been reconciled, all right? A human face and a nail-scarred hands will greet us one day. <laughs> Woo! And, oh, that's good. And, and he is sitting at God's right hand. So the current state of his work is called his heavenly session. And that means that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, actively interceding and reigning, reigning over his kingdom and, 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 and mediating on our behalf. All right? The Old Testament foretold this, fra- this phase of the Messiah's work. In Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And it must be one of the favorite verses to be used because it's used over and over and over in the New Testament. All right, so Jesus told of this heavenly session, session which would precede his return when he referred to the messianic imagery of Daniel 7 when he said from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven the right hand of God is the symbolic place of power and honor distinction and prestige so Jesus sets to portray the sufficiency of his saving work on earth and he, he continues a vital, active ministry as he reigns as king and as lord over all creation. So his current ministry is a great source of comfort for us. And it's a great source of authority and encouragement for us because it ensures that his ministry as prophet, priest, and king continues 
and one day will be acknowledged by all creation. From his current exalted position, Jesus pours out his spirit on his people then, all right? Um, and that, that, that was in Acts 2. And uh, so in his intercession, intercession on behalf of his people takes place at the right hand of the Father, so then that we we never need to fear condemnation, all right? That's why for all those who are in Christ, uh, there is no condemnation. And Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Now, the, the other last parts could, is the final coming, the future reign, the eternal glory. And, you know, there's not much. I mean, there's there's things to say about that. But uh, we're obviously, I've explained eschatology and how we're divided on the coming, uh, the final coming. But we should all agree that someday Jesus is to return in glory. And... There will be a definite, comprehensive acknowledgement that He is Lord over all. And then He will then judge the living and the dead, right? So, prior to the Incarnation, Jesus was glorious. By displaying His holy character through His incarnate life, death, and resurrection, He received even greater glory. And Jesus' pre-incarnate glory was taken to a whole new level when He entered into His eternal glory, not only as God, but now as God-man. So Jesus displayed His divine character through the human actions of His incarnate life, death, resurrection his majesty mercy love holiness wisdom and power then have been manifested sinlessly in a true man and for this for this jesus will be praised for all eternity therefore the 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 worship of heaven focuses on the work that he has done the work of jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, the King, as the worthy Lamb who was slain. Jesus' eternal glory, which he shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit, is the supreme goal of all that he did. In redeeming a people for himself, he displayed his many perfections in such a way that he will now receive the glory he deserves for eternity and that glory will be displayed and acknowledged around his throne on a redeemed earth and through song and worship and praise as we become gardeners again and walk in in the cool of the day in his presence Alright, there you go. There's another episode for y'all. I hope you enjoyed that. A little bit of theology uh, there. Ooh, that's good stuff. Any questions, comments, complaints, disagreements, get into the Facebook discussion page or shoot me an email at the Kingdom Project Podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, be a mustard seed, be 11. Thanks so much for listening.